I, I realize that most of the folks that are in this room this morning, you, you have already come to the place in your life where you have, have come to the God of the Bible on His terms. We would state that, that you have been saved, that you have been born again. You've been born into God's family, adopted as, as His child through birth and through adoption and you know, all of those things that the Bible says. But, you know, there's a lot of folks that are in this room here this morning, and quite honestly, you, you, you're just not there yet. And, and that's cool. Man, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. Because you know what? All of us came into a church service much like this one. The same way that you've come in with a lot of questions and a lot of what-ifs and all those kind of things. And, and so we understand that. But if I could just talk to you for just a, a second. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But what is it? What would it take for you to come to the point in your life where you would come to God. I mean, have you ever thought about what, what would it actually take in your life to bring you to that place? What would God have to do? Now, now listen, I'm not asking you what would God have to do to cause you to join this church. That's not the issue. I, I'm not asking you what would God have to do to make you a religious person because that's not the issue either. I'm, I'm just asking you, what would it take? What would God have to do? What would you have to see? What would you have to experience for you to come to the point in your life to where you would make your opinion God's opinion? To where you'd come to the point in your life to where you would submit yourself and your will to the God of this book. You say, well, I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you this first thing that I have to know beyond any shadow of a doubt is that this book was in fact from God and I would have to know that the historical Jesus Christ was God that actually came to this planet but most of you are here and you're thinking to yourself but I just cannot take that blind leap of faith like I see so many other people do when it comes to this Bible thing and this this whole Jesus thing and can I just say to you that the God of the Bible does not want you taking any blind leap of faith toward him or this book? He doesn't want you to do that. So you know what he did? He did something just unbelievable for you. He took this book and he made this book a book of prophecy. In fact, there's over 10,360 specific prophecies in this book. Many of them have to do with Jesus Christ. The fact that a man would come to this planet who would be more than a man. He would, in fact, be God. And so you'd never have to take this blind leap of faith. You know what God did? He said, now here's how you'll know that he's the one. Here's how you know that he came. And what God did is in the midst of those over 10,000 prophecies, 365 of them had to do with how we would know that God had invaded this planet in the person of a man, God in a human body. He laid out 365 specific things because nobody can cause those things to happen. And so Jesus Christ was born in the city of Bethlehem just like it had been prophesied as one of the one of 365 prophecies. And he fulfilled every single one of those to the letter so that you'd never come to the point where you'd ever have to wonder whether or not 
this book was from God, and so that you'd never have to wonder whether or not Jesus Christ was God who came to this planet. He wiped out the whole blind leap of faith thing through something supernatural. Now, I've gone through all of that, and this is just, you know, just a little introduction. But I do want you to understand this morning, what we are going to see from Revelation chapter 9 is that if you will not respond to what God has already done in your life to bring you to himself, then there is nothing, listen, then there is nothing that you could ever see and there's nothing that you could ever experience that would bring you to God. He's already done every single thing that he is going to do. And so I want you to listen very carefully to what we're going to see th- this morning. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and what you need to understand is just as God, just as he laid out these prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ, God also laid out specific prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's over three times as many prophecies concerning his second coming to this earth. Now, I want to say this, we don't have the time to drag it all out this morning, but I do want you to understand something. From everything that the Bible lays out about the time of the second coming of Christ to this planet, We are right now living in that very time. It is all around us. All the prophecies are leading us to believe that we are, in fact, living at that very time. And what the Bible teaches about this second coming of Jesus Christ to this planet is that that coming comes in two phases. There is the first phase that is called the rapture. Most of you have probably heard about that. What is amazing is the people that come to this church from other churches where they attend every week, and we have to define for them the term. It's it's becoming a foreign concept, but most people, even people that are outside of church, are aware of the fact that what the Bible says is that Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds, and he is going to bodily remove off of the face of this planet every person who has entered into a personal relationship with God. That is, they've been born again. That's the first phase of his coming. The removal of believers off of the face of this planet. That could happen literally at any moment. At any moment, that could take place on this planet. That event is going to lead us into a period of a seven-year tribulation. A time that Jesus Christ said there's never been a time like it, there'll never be a time like it after it. It is a horrendous time of judgment on this planet that lasts for a period of seven years, and it culminates with a battle that will culminate with heaven opening and Jesus Christ not just coming in the clouds this time, but coming all the way back to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ. That is what we call the second coming of Christ. And what we're dealing with right now, with where we are in the book of Revelation, is we are dealing with the second half of that tribulation period. 
What we've seen already as we've been coming through the book of Revelation is in chapter 6, John has already brought us through the tribulation period one time, and he brought us in chapter 6 through the tribulation period, through the figure of seals that were opened. Those aren't the kind that go, you know, all that deal. We're talking about seals of a book that were opened. And then in chapter 8, he began to bring us through the tribulation period again, this time through the figure of seven trumpets that were sounded by seven angels. And to this point, we've come through the, the sounding of five of those trumpets already. Now, now, now listen, for those of you that have not been here, those first four trumpets that sounded, that were explaining to John and allowing him to see unfolding on this planet, this tribulation period that the world is about to be entered into, those first four trumpets were just absolutely terrible. But in chapter 8, and look at verse 13, before the sounding of this fifth angel, God let John know that the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets were going to make those first four seem like they were absolutely nothing. And what he tells us here in verse 13 of chapter 8 is that the sounding of this fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet are what God calls the first, second, and third woes. So we've got these seven trumpets that are going to sound. We came through four of them, and they were horrendous. And now God says, but I want you to know something. When you see what's going to take place in this fifth, sixth, and seventh, these are just absolutely breathtaking. We came through that that fifth one last week in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. And I'm telling you, well, actually it was two weeks ago. But I'm telling you, we don't have the time to work all the way through that thing again, but... The only way that I know to describe what takes place in the first 12 verses of chapter 9 is that this is just absolutely freaky. The Lord Jesus Christ, what happens as this fifth trumpet sounds, is the Lord Jesus Christ opens the bottomless pit, which is a real place that burns with real fire and brimstone, where real people go, And he opens this this bottomless pit, and when he does, and of course the Bible teaches, and we saw this as we went through it, that that bottomless pit is located at the center of the earth. And when Jesus opens this thing, demonic locusts come billowing out of the bottomless pit by the hordes. Millions of demonic locusts that he describes here that have a sting that they inflict upon men and the sting when it stings them is like the sting of a scorpion the only difference is that it lasts for a period of five solid months but now listen as horrendous and freaky as that thing is where the 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 demonic scorpion locusts come up out of the bottomless pit this morning In verses 13 to 21, the the sixth angel sounds the sixth trumpet. The second woe unfolds. And listen, as it does, another of God's prison houses is unlocked. And as it is, it unleashes on this planet an army 
of demonic creatures that come onto the earth to terrorize the people of this planet whose number, as we're going to see here in just a second, is so incredible that it will absolutely blow your mind. And, and what's wild is though that first woe, that fifth trumpet, was just so absolutely horrendous, when you see what takes place in this one, folks, I'm telling you, it gets even freakier th than that first one because as I mentioned just a second ago, the demonic locusts that we saw in verses 1 to 12 they were permitted to hurt men. And we talked about the, the torment of that five-month sting. But they weren't permitted to kill. In fact, what we find is that the pain of the, the sting was so unbelievably excruciating and unbearable. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. It says that men actually try to commit suicide to escape the torment of the pain of the, the sting but they can't die. No matter what they try, it doesn't work. It, it, all it does as they try it, it just causes them more pain. And what we find is in that fifth trumpet, death is actually removed from this planet for a period of five months. But now when this sixth angel sounds and, and this, this vast army of supernatural demonic beings which we'll see are mounted on supernatural de demonic horses as these creatures are let loose and they begin to invade the earth death returns once again after this five month sabbatical death returns to this planet and when it comes buddy it comes with vengeance and by, by the time these beings that we're going to talking about here by the time they've exercised this, their power on this planet, one-third of the world's population is totally wiped out. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning, the invasion of the infernal cavalry. Now, for those of you in junior high and all that, a cavalry is, you know, we have the Cleveland Cavs, okay? A, a cavalry is, is an army that is mounted on horses, the infernal part of this is they're coming up right out of hell, okay? I did that for the junior higher so all you adults would know exactly what we're talking about there. Okay, but John lays out three different aspects of this, this demonic invasion in this passage. First of all, in verses 13 to 15, there is the heavenly outcry. The heavenly outcry. And look at verse 13. It says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And you'll remember that we, we talked about this golden altar when we were back in chapter 8, verses 3, 4, and 5. In fact, why don't you just look back there. Remember, we talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel during the time of Moses that he wanted them to construct a tabernacle. He wanted them to construct a place for him to dwell in, in the midst of their camp. And we saw that when God told them to make this tabernacle, that God told them to make it according to a pattern. He was going to give them the pattern, which he tells us in the book of Hebrews, was really this pattern that he gave. It was just, he was showing them a miniature of what he called the true tabernacle, 
that is in heaven. Okay, so get the picture. There is a tabernacle, a place where God dwells in heaven. And in the Old Testament, God tells Moses, I want you to make one on the earth for me to dwell in, right there in the midst of your camp. And I'm going to give you the pattern of this thing, and this pattern is just a, it's just a miniature of what is really up here. Okay, So just as there was a golden altar in that Old Testament tabernacle, that we can go back into the book of Exodus and we can see that thing, that altar that was called the altar of incense, so there is also in the true tabernacle, even this morning, there is a golden altar, a altar of incense that is in the true tabernacle in heaven. Okay, And we saw when we were back in chapter 8 that it was at this golden altar of incense where God was holding the unanswered prayers of all saints. That is, both the church age saints and the tribulation saints saints there's unanswered prayers that god holds at that golden altar the altar of incense and what are those unanswered prayers do you remember the church age saints have been praying just like jesus told us to in luke chapter 11 and verses 2 and 3 we pray for his kingdom to come to this earth for jesus christ to be glorified on this earth and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and folks it will not happen until his kingdom comes to this planet And he tells us you pray for that the tribulation saints we saw look in chapter 6 in verse 10 these who were martyred during the tribulation period they're praying and what are they praying they're praying for God's justice to be served on this planet and for God to judge and avenge their blood on those that dwell on the earth and in chapter 8 and verse 4 what's taking place here at the golden altar is that these prayers that God has been holding through the whole church age and into the tribulation period those prayers begin to come up into the nostrils of God as a sweet-smelling savor. And verse 5 of chapter 8, God moves to answer those prayers. And you'll notice in verse 6, that this is what brought us into the sounding of these seven trumpets in the first place. Okay, That's what's been going on at the golden altar. Now go back to chapter 9 and verse 13. With the sounding of this sixth angel... John hears a voice, and where is that voice coming from? That voice is coming directly from the golden altar. It's coming from the altar of incense. And now listen, the reason that it is, is because this sixth trumpet marks God's final judgment upon the earth before the prayers at that altar are completely answered now are you following what I'm saying when this sixth trumpet by the time it's over God is going to bring his kingdom to this earth and here is where those prayers have been being held the sixth trumpet is about to sound and John hears a voice that's coming right from that golden altar and let me show you this to go over to chapter 11 Now, now, now listen, the seventh angel doesn't sound the seventh trumpet until chapter 11 and verse 15. Now, you see, this morning, we're, we're back here in chapter 9. Now, this seventh trumpet isn't going to sound until chapter 11 
And verse 15, and watch what happens when it does. Verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so what that tells us is that this sixth trumpet that we're talking about in chapter 9 actually completes the second of four times in the book of Revelation where God brings us through the tribulation period. Now, you remember when we came through chapter 6? He brought us through the tribulation period the first time. And then look, look at chapter 7. Do you remember when, as we were coming through this? Chapter 7 was a, was a what? It was a parenthesis. You remember? And, and he, he brings us through chapter 7, and he showed us that the things that were happening in chapter 7, actually, as far as chronology is concerned, those things in chapter 7 were actually taking place during the opening of the six seals. Okay, now we're in chapter 9. We're coming through the sixth trumpet. And I want you to see here, chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 is also a parenthesis. Okay, God is bringing us through that tribulation period through the six trumpets in chapters 8 and chapter 9. And then he's going to show us some other things in chapter 10 that have been going on during the sounding of these six trumpets. But John says, look in chapter 9 and verse 13. He says that he heard a voice that was coming from the altar where the very prayers for the kingdom to come were stored. And this voice was saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, were to slay the third part of men. Now, now notice, first of all, the spirit powers involved. The spirit powers involved. Verse 14 talks about four angels that are bound in the great river Euphrates. Four angels that are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now just run this thing in your mind through four angels. You remember when we were back in chapter 7? We saw in verse 1 of chapter 7, and these things I, after these things I saw four angels. Okay, so we've got four angels in chapter 7. We've got four angels in chapter 9, but make sure that you understand these are not the same four angels. The four angels in chapter 7 stood on the four corners of the earth. The four angels in chapter 9 are bound in a specific place on the earth, as we've already seen in the great river Euphrates. The four angels in chapter 7, they hold back the instruments of judgment. You remember we saw that? They hold back the instruments of judgment. The angels in chapter 9, these four angels, they let loose the instruments of judgment. The four angels in chapter 7 are holy angels. And the fact that these four angels in chapter 9 are wicked angels or fallen angels is obvious because of the simple fact that they are, they are bound 
You see, you cannot go anywhere in the Bible to find any instance whatsoever where there's ever any holy angels that are bound. But if you check out 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, if you check out Jude, verse 6, what you'll find is both Peter and Jude talk about unholy angels that, uh, that they call angels that sinned. And what they both describe is that the fact that they are bound in chains. And we're going to see in Revelation chapter 20 that during the millennium, Satan himself will be what? He'll be bound for a period of a thousand years in the bottomless pit. So these are unholy angels. They're different than the ones in Revelation chapter 7. And, and evidently, the reason that these four angels in, in verse 14, the reason that they are bound is because of their intense hatred for mankind. I mean, listen, these, these angels are just, they're just waiting to be let loose so that they can start annihilating the people on this planet before those people have the chance to repent. I mean, there's a hatred in them, and, and they're obviously four angels of Satan's most powerful and, and influential and, and high-ranking demons that, that, he, that he's got. Because, listen, as soon as these four angels are let loose, they contract a host of, of demonic soldiers that are armed with nuclear-like power, and this army is mobilized instantly, and they immediately are set loose on this planet and begin to wreak havoc on the people of this, this planet. And I mean, they are just, they're just waiting for this. And so God says they are, they are bound. And I'll tell you who I, I think that they are. You don't, you don't have to agree with, with this. But I mean, it is, there's four specific angels that he said are bound in the great river Euphrates, and if you go back, you don't need to go back there right now, but in your mind, if you go back to Daniel chapter 10, you remember, and we've talked about this quite a bit recently in the last several months, you remember that, that Daniel began praying and fasting, and he was waiting for God to answer him. There were some things he wanted some answers for, and he begins praying. You remember what happened? Finally, after a 21-day period, an angel comes to Daniel, and, and he says, Man, uh, Daniel, I would have been here sooner. But the demon that has been designated as the satanic power over Persia has been up there, and I've been fighting with him for the last 21 days. And did you catch that? There was a demonic power that Satan had placed over the country of Persia that was keeping his angel from bringing to Daniel the answer to his prayer. Now you'll remember also in the book of Daniel... And what Daniel does is he identifies in this book, through the vision, he identifies the four world powers of Scripture. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Now listen, all four of those world powers, just like that one in Persia, they have a demon that is over them a demon of incredible rank of incredible power and I believe that these four angels that that are bound in the great river Euphrates just may be the four demons who in times past controlled those four empires 
for Satan. Now, again, you, you don't have to buy that. I, I'm not, I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm just telling you, that's what, that's what I believe is going on here. They're bound in the great river Euphrates. And, and what's interesting is every one of those world powers, coincidentally enough, are connected with the Euphrates. Okay, and that leads us to the next point, and that is the strategic place involved. The strategic place involved. Those were the spirit powers involved. Now here is the strategic place involved. The end of verse 14 says that these four angels were bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, I, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but this river holds a, a very prominent place in the Scripture. In fact, the Euphrates has always been recognized as the dividing line between the East and the West, between what we call the Near East and the Far East. And as you begin to trace this particular place through the Bible, you find that the Euphrates was the site of some of the most significant events in human history. Okay, since it was one of the the four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden, it was near that river that man first saw the light of day. It was the region of the Euphrates that Satan first appeared on this planet in the form of a serpent. It was here that man's first sin was committed. It was here that the earth's miseries were introduced. It was here that the first murder was committed on this planet. It was here that the first war was fought. It was here in, in, in this region that the Tower of Babel was built in defiance against God. And the first world ruler set up his kingdom against God, Nimrod, in the, the Babylonian Empire. And you see, it's going to be in this, this place where we will see that the final sin will all culminate in Revelation chapter 16. What we find there is that the great river Euphrates is going to dry up to become a passageway to a final battle that the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon. So it is this place that these four angels are bound and rage this morning, just waiting to be let loose on this planet, to do their destruction. And buddy, they will. I mean, you can, you can bank on that. And that's the next point in verse 15. The specific period involved. The specific period involved. Now, now listen, God's got a very specific time that he's prepared for these four angels to be loosed. Verse 5 says or verse 15 says, And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men. Now, I, I'm telling you, a lot of folks get confused on, on, on this verse. So now, now make sure that you listen. Make sure you understand what, what the verse is saying. Okay, we're, this is going to be on the test, Okay. Now listen, this verse isn't talking about how long it took to prepare these four angels. God's not saying, you know, I, I, I've been busy preparing these guys for a, a day and an hour and a month and a year. And, you know, that's not what he's talking about. And it's not talking about how long of a period that these angels actually wreaked their havoc upon the earth. 
Now look at the verse. The verse is saying that there is a very specific hour coming on a specific day, on a, of a specific month, in a specific year, and at precisely that moment that God prepared, all hell is literally going to break loose on this planet. That's what he's saying. And, and you know, through the centuries, folks, I, I just want to tell you, God has taken it on the chin quite a bit. Because man sees all of the, the atrocities that sinful men meet out on innocent people. And, you know, he, man sees all of the, the yuck of, of the world. And, and what is man's response? I mean, every generation of people has said it. If there's a God, why didn't he do something about all of this stuff in the world? Well, buddy, this verse is telling you, he is. He will. And listen, the only reason that he hasn't to this point is it ain't the time yet. But he's prepared today of the month, of the year, right down to the very hour. Acts chapter 15 and verse 18 says this, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And God's got his hour. And buddy, it's going to happen just exactly the way that God said on the day that God picked out and prepared. And it's going to happen right down to the very hour. And, and the end of verse 15 says that the result will be that one-third of the people on the planet will be slain. Now, now let's just think about this for just a second. One-third of the world's population at this period of time. Now understand, during the sounding of the sixth trumpet, we are at, right at the very end of the tribulation period. Okay? So when he's talking about the fact that a third of the world's population is going to be destroyed, what, what, is, what are we really talking about here? Well, go back in chapter 6 for just a second. You, you remember when we were going through the opening of the, the seals here in chapter 6, that when the fourth seal was opened in chapter 6 and verse 8, one-fourth of the world's population was wiped out at that point. Okay? Now... Right now on this planet, we're, we're fast approaching a population of 6 billion people that are on this planet. Okay, now just think in your mind. Okay, right now there's 6 billion people, and we know that the events that we're talking about here are going to happen relatively soon to this period of time right now. So basically we can work off of the assumption that the planet is going to have at the beginning of the tribulation period, approximately 6 billion people, but figure this in, okay? Now, remember, the rapture takes place in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, which it marks the beginning of the tribulation period, and at the rapture of the church, at the rapture of true believers on this planet, it's going to remove quite a bit of the humanity. And I don't know how much, but let's just, for the sake of what we're talking about here, let's just say that it's a, a billion people. Okay, now, I don't really believe that it's going to be a billion people, but it, it, it could very well be, be close to that, okay? So a billion people are removed, so now, at the end, by the time the rapture takes place, the earth has how many people? Okay, I just want to see if we're tracking here. Just, 
the earth has five billion people, okay? And what we see here in, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8 is one-fourth of that five billion die at that point, okay? And one-fourth of five billion is 1.25 billion, all right? So, okay, now the earth is down. Now we're going to lose you here for sure, right? Now the earth is down to 3,750,000,000, okay? And do you remember what we saw when the third angel sounded? Look in chapter 8 and verse 10. You remember that the star that is called Wormwood falls to the earth and it poisons a third of the earth's fresh water supply. And do you remember the result at the end of verse 11? Look at what it says. And many, and many men died of the waters. Now it doesn't tell us just how many or even what percentage at this point, but let's just say that this many is 750 million, okay? And that would bring the world's population to 3 billion. Okay, you guys are doing good, okay? 3 billion people by the time we get here. Now there could be just a little bit less because there's lots of other disasters going on during this, this time as well, but let's just say there's 3 billion. Okay, now in verse 15, one-third of them are killed. How many is that? A billion people. I mean, uh, folks, we, we, we talked about this before. A billion is such an incredible number that we cannot even begin to fathom it. You remember when we talked about how many a billion actually is? We won't go through all of that again. But I want you to see here. Now, what takes place when this sixth trumpet sounds and a third of the world's population is wiped out? We're talking about a billion people that will be killed. And watch how John says it's all going to happen. Okay, now he, he showed us the heavenly outcry. And now in verses 16 to 19, he's going to show us the hellish outbreak. The hellish outbreak. Now, we, we, we kind of go through little times in, in this church where there are some folks that I, I'm just telling you, I can't understand it. For the life of me, I can't. We're, we're talking about the devastation of a billion people, hell opening up, and people literally that are on this planet right now being the, the, the objects of that judgment. And people sit in the pew, I mean, half of a row, laughing and carrying on like there's nothing even going on. I'm just telling you, man. It trips me out, and, and I'll tell you what else, it really, it really bothers me. I don't know if you can tell that or not, but it just bothers me. And the reason it bothers me is I don't care what you do, but boy, I do care about the people that are all around you that do want to listen, and that infuriates me for the glory of God, of course. Okay, now let's look at the hellish outbreak, and I'd like to ask you, okay, please, let the people around you hear the hellish outbreak. Okay, the four angels are loosed. And immediately, these four angels summon to, to war an evil army of horse-like creatures with riders on their backs that John calls horsemen. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 16, the number of this cavalry. The number of this cavalry. Verse 16 says, And the number of the army of the horsemen 
were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. I mean, he hears the, the number. Now, if you don't know how many 200,000 thousand is, what it is is 200,000 times 1,000. Okay? How many is that, class? Okay, at least two of you knew that. It's, it's 200 million. Now, you say, why didn't it just say 200 million? Well, the reason it doesn't is, is that in the Greek language, the highest number that they had ended with the thousands family. Okay? Now, you see, we, we come to 999,999, and the next number is what? It's a million. Okay, the Greeks, they went to 999,999, and then they went to 1,000,000. That's the way they referred to a, a million. So John tells us this army numbered 200,000, thousand, or 200 million. Now, folks, can you imagine an army of 200 million but what is this army and that's what John shows us next the nature of the cavalry the nature of the cavalry and as he begins to describe these horses and these horsemen it becomes pretty obvious that he has seen an army the likes of which none of us have ever seen now, now before we get into this let me just explain to you that there are a lot of people that that believe that what John is describing here is in fact a human army comprised of 200 million soldiers and that what John is doing in this passage is he is simply describing for us in first century vocabulary warfare that is taking place at the end of the 20th century or the the very beginning of the the 21st century what he's describing here they would say is is modern mechanized thermonuclear warfare with soldiers carrying rocket launchers and and army tanks galloping across the the, the fields with with huge uh, uh, artillery shells and and all of those kind of things and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you there is that possibility here I, I'm not saying that, that that's not what he's describing remember he's a first century man seeing things that are going on in our lifetime and he doesn't have the definitions that we have for a lot of these things so it could very well be that now personally I don't believe that that's what he's describing here I, I think that when it's a symbol in the book of Revelation God very clearly lays that out so that there's no guesswork but I'll tell you this what's interesting if you want to go in that other direction is that according to, to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12 this army that we're talking about that arises out of what I believe is hell it comes this army comes from the east okay, the east of the Euphrates east of Palestine okay right in the area where red China would be and, and check this out an Associated Press article by John H Hightower Dateline Washington DC April 28 1964 said that they're just in 1964 
it said that there just happened to be 200 million armed and organized militiamen in red China. And, and just 200 million, you know, of all the figures, you know. I mean, not, not 150, not 175, not 225, but 200 million. So, I mean, that, that's at least interesting. So, I don't know. May, maybe that's, that is what John's describing. But, by the nature that they seem to possess from what John's describing here, it makes me think that these are demonic, superhuman horsemen that are evidently some kind of souls of unsaved dead men that are coming up out of hell and they're riding on demonic supernatural horses and you can land wherever you want to we're gonna walk through this and you can you can see it you can just figure out what what you think but that's what I believe is is he's dealing with with something that is totally demonic and has transcended something human now I don't know, maybe God, or maybe uh, what happens here is, is maybe these demons out of hell, maybe they come into an earthly army, and maybe there is some kind of superhuman thing that's transformed there. I don't know, but, but just, just check this thing out. It, it is kind of interesting to me that legends have been passed on century after century after century in China and Tibet, that there's going to come a day, now this is the legend, that there's going to come a day when the ground is going to open up and Genghis Khan and his hordes of Mongolians and Tartars are going to come up out of the ground and terrorize the world. Just, it sounds a whole lot like what is des described here. Now, if you're a, a Bible believer and you just believe what the Bible says, you know, where you find it and as you read it, you just believe what it says. What, you know what? What you begin to see is that all of the, the legends and all of the mythology that you see and, and you read about and you, you studied in school and all that, what you begin to see is all of that stuff has an element of truth in it. Those lies have been able to be propagated because they do hold some truth. And if you're a Bible believer... And you believe what you read, you begin to see, you know what, this is exactly what they're talking about over here. It's just Satan's masked it as something mythological. It's just a legend. I'm not saying Genghis Khan's coming out. I'm just telling you. That kind of stuff came from somewhere. But John says in verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of Jason and brimstone you see these aren't your your everyday run-of-the-mill oriental horsemen that john was seeing here they got breastplates of fire and jacinth and brimstone and the horses aren't natural horses either verse 17 goes on and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone, and brimstone is, is, is like sulfur. It's burning sulfur. Now, I, I, you haven't seen any, any horses running around with heads like lions, have you? Breathing fire and smoke and brimstone out of their mouth like a dragon. Anybody seen any of that? It's, just what, I'm it's not a natural thing that he's talking about. Verse 18, by these three was the third part of men killed. 
Okay, these are the three things that actually killed the third part of the people on the earth by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. Okay, and, and evidently, they travel through the earth and as they go, they just go through zapping people, man. I mean, th this fire and this brimstone and, and this smoke, it just boom, shoots out of their mouth like a, a, a torch or a, like some kind of a, 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 a laser beam or something like that. Look at verse 19. For their power, listen to this now, for their power is in their mouth. And buddy, I wish we had about 30 minutes right here for me to just haul off and, and preach. Because I want you to know something. In this way, we're a whole lot like these demons right here. The most powerful part of your entire body, folks, is a four-inch six ounce slab of mucus mu membrane it's found in your mouth and James chapter 3 calls the what calls the tongue and, and would you listen to what he says in James chapter 3 and verse 6 listen the tongue is a it's a fire he says the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity so is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of you know what the next word is hell and buddy we're talking about these you know these demon horses here with heads like lions and the powers coming out of their mouth and don't you miss the fact that this week, one of the biggest struggles you're going to face is demonic power that's sitting right in your mouth. Your power is in your mouth, too. You, you know what? You have the power to kill with this thing that comes out of your mouth, too. I, I can take you to annihilated people because people didn't guard their tongue. They said whatever came out of their mouth, and it didn't matter who it, who it hurt, whether it was true or whether it was not true, does it need to be said? People are, are killed. Reputations are, are killed because of the power that is in our mouth. But that's another day. But listen, don't get so hungry for all this, uh, the gore and all this stuff that Laodiceans love to hear and miss the fact that we've got that same stinking power in our mouth and it needs to be killed, bridled, as he says but he says here their, their power is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt now, now check this out even th their tails had heads and whatever it was that came out of the, the heads in their tails, he says it, it wasn't deadly like what came out of the, the lion's head on the front of them, but what it was that was coming out of the heads that were in the tails of these creatures, it did have the power 
to hurt. You know, I mean, you can just kind of visualize in your mind, you know, you, you can see these things coming loose on the earth, 200 million of them, and they're chasing after men. Men and women and children are running for, the, for dear life, and here is this creature, and he shoots something out of the heads that are in his tails, and it, 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 it hurts, and it causes them to just stop dead in their tracks, and then, like a, a, a torch, it shoots out of its mouth fire and smoke and brimstone, and it just pow, torches that person. I'm telling you, folks, Hollywood doesn't have anything over on the Bible, does it? I mean, this is just an incredible thing that John is seeing. The only difference between this and Hollywood is when this thing takes place on the earth, you won't be able to walk out of the theater it's being played on. You won't be able to change the channel to escape it when it gets just a little bit too freaky because it's all real. And that leads us to the third thing about this demonic invasion. We've seen the heavenly outcry. We've seen the hellish outbreak. And next John shows us the human outcome. The human outcome. Now, we've already seen that a, a third of the world's population dies as a result of this army of 200 million that are led by these four angels that ascend out of the, the Euphrates. But what about the approximately 2 billion people that are going to be left on this planet that won't be killed by these, these, these creatures? What, what's going to be the result after seeing all of the stuff that that two billion people will have seen. Now, now, now what's, what's so freaky about this to me is, and I don't know, I don't know who it's going to be, but chances are good that there are some people that are in this room right now, this very minute, that are going to be part of this two billion people that are going to be left after all of these things have taken place. And now I want you to just think back in your mind with me at all of the stuff that that two billion people will have seen and experienced. Remember when the first angel sounded back in chapter 8 and verse 7? Remember what happened? Ice and fire and blood started falling out of the sky and a third of the trees were burned up along with all of the green vegetation on the planet and they witnessed that. And then a giant meteor falls out of the sky and into the sea. And when it does, a third of the sea literally becomes blood. And it kills a third of the living creatures that are in the sea, along with wiping out a third of the ships that are on the planet. And then another asteroid comes, uh, or a meteorite, whatever it is, it, it comes and it hits the earth. And when it does, it poisons a third of the world's fresh water supply, causing millions to die. And these people will have witnessed that. And then the sun and the moon and the stars, they start freaking out. A third of their light is diminished. The 24-hour cycle that we all know that it goes on every single day, it's cut by a third as well. So that they've watched the 24-hour cycle become a 16-hour cycle. They've witnessed that. And then here come these demonic locusts with that unbearable sting, and they've watched people. Maybe they were even some of those people who were stung and experienced that excruciating pain where they were just begging to die and trying their best to die and were unable to do it. 
And then after all of that, what we've seen this morning, this invasion of this infernal army of 200 million indestructible demons on these demonic horses, and they've witnessed as these creatures wipe out a third of the world's population. And they've witnessed all of that. Now, folks, now just think about it. With a rational mind, after watching all of that, now you would think, you would just think that man would be at the point to where he couldn't say, boy, I'll tell you what, this has just been an incredible stroke of bad luck. Man, uh, uh, crazy weather we've been having, ain't it? Well, I'll tell you what, these catastrophes that are going on in the last three and a half years, that's mighty coincidental that they all line up that quick. Uh, come on. I mean, you know good and well, you just see all of these unexplainable, supernatural things taking place, just bam, 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 one right after another. I mean, no, no, come on. You would think that at this point, Man would just be falling on his face, crying out to God for mercy. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, some, whatever I need to do. I mean, he'd be repenting of things that he hadn't even done, much less repenting of the things that he had done. But verse 20 says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. You know, there are just so many people that believe, they believe the Bible, they believe Jesus Christ is God, they believe that he died for man's sin, they believe that he was buried, they believe that he rose again the third day, and yet, listen, and yet in the midst of believing all that stuff, they're still not saved. You know what a lot of people on this planet are doing? They're just sitting around waiting for the divine zap. For God to just do something in their life that, you know, is just going to send them over the edge. You know, what they're waiting for is for God to just do something to obliterate their will and make them come to Christ. Something that would be just so spectacular that, oh my goodness, I'm going to get saved. This is why I was telling you at the beginning. If you will not respond to what God has already done to reveal himself to you, it doesn't matter what he does. You ain't going to do it. He's doing everything, even right at this very second that he promised to do. He said it would be through the foolishness of preaching. You know what? This is stupid, y'all. For us to file into a room and listen to a guy run his thinking mouth for over an hour about all this stuff, that's stupid. God says, that's the way I like it. I like it stupid. I, I like for a guy to just get up there and just say what that book says. And he says, and I'll do a miracle in the midst of that. There'll be people that'll be sitting there, that'll be listening to that, and for some reason, the Spirit of God is going to come off of that page of that book into their life, and they'll be saved. So understand, listen, you're getting everything that God's going to do for you, and if you don't respond to what he's doing now, you ain't going to respond. And it doesn't matter what he does. Verse 20 shows us 
is that if what God has already done isn't enough to bring you to repentance, you wouldn't come, even if he did the most supernatural things imaginable right in front of you. And you know what? Besides all of that, you know that Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says this? I love this. It says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I want you to listen, folks. I don't really know what all you know about the Bible, but I do want you to know this, that, that God has been so good to you. He loved you when you, from his perspective, were very unlovely because God is holy and we are all helpless, hopeless sinners. And in the midst of all of our sin, the holy God of this universe still loved us and he manifested that love to us and satisfied his own holy justice by coming to this planet in the person of Jesus Christ and dying on the cross to take our sin away so that we could come into a relationship with him. I'll just tell you, that's the goodness of God right there, folks. And, and you know what? Beyond all of that, you know what? You know how good he's been to you? He's allowed you to have his very book that reveals this truth in your own language, sitting in your own hands this morning. And you know what? Even beyond all of that, he's been good enough to you to somehow, in his sovereignty, bring you into this room this morning where you are receiving a warning about what is going to take place if you do not respond to the light that God is giving to you at this very moment. He's good, isn't he? He's a good God, and it is His goodness that leads us to repentance. But John shows us here in verse 20 that these people who weren't killed by these demons at the end of the tribulation period, they showed, first of all, a lack of repentance Godward. A lack of repentance Godward. That is, a lack of repentance in their sins that are directed against God. Again, seeing all of this stuff that man knows is from the direct hand of God, he will not only not repent and turn to God, but, but check this out. In the tribulation period, what God says is that man, in the midst of all of this, he will continue to worship devils through the idols that he makes with his own hands. I don't, I, I don't know if you're thinking with me, but that is the most incredible statement that you'll ever hear. In the midst of all of that, man's going to worship an idol that he made with his own hands, and a demon comes where that idol is supposed to be doing his gig, and a man ends up worshiping devils in the face of the Almighty God. And you know what, folks? Listen, one of the things that you we learn from history, normally we don't learn anything from history, but if you'll step back from it long enough to try to learn something, one of the things that history shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt is that man cannot live in a religious or a spiritual vacuum. He can't do it. He may try it for a while, but in one way or another, in time, he's going to end up worshiping something. And what's wild is that we're living in a generation where people want to remove God, and so now what are they doing? I mean, all this uh, big hippies movement and all that. You know what all those people are worshiping now? The New Age, the gods of the New Age. And all that stuff is going to continue right on into the tribulation period. And they're going to, right in the full face of God's revelation, more times than not, what has happened in, in history 
is man in the full face of everything that God has laid out in this book about who he is you know what God a man does he chooses to invent his own religion and create his own God rather than worship the Creator God and submit to him and I'm telling you when you stop when you really stop to think about this folks it's one of the most bizarre things in all the world I mean think about this man will spend his own time his own money and his own energy using his own hands to make himself a god of gold or of silver or of brass or he'll he'll get a rock and he'll carve it out of a rock or he'll take a tree a uh, wood and he'll carve it out of that that stupid tree and then he'll make up his own rules as he goes along and he's got this god sitting in front of him that he made with his own hands and the stupid thing just sits there and here is this man he's knowing that he made all of this up and then he'll take his life and he'll submit himself to that thing I'm just telling you man is nuts uh, one of, I, I can't say the, the man's name because it might the story might come back around but one of the men in our church it's a carpenter was adding on a little addition for one of the families in our own community and so he, he builds this this little addition on and he finds out that what this thing is is actually a shrine now he didn't know all of that but he, he put French doors on the thing and he didn't realize it but he you know that this is gonna be a problem but he put uh, on the French doors they had locks on them so th they, they come and, and they say uh, uh, no, no 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 locks on the Oh, what's the deal? How come, how come no locks? You can't lock the gods in. Okay. You're going to worship a god that you can lock in a room? That's a problem. And then we want you to put a doorbell on the outside of this little little room. I don't mean to be nosy or anything, but you know, what's up with your doorbell? Why are you doing that? to wake the gods up honest gospel truth you can lock up the god and you gotta wake them up to get their attention you, you make it with, with with your own hand i love the way he he says look at the verse twenty here you will submit to something that can't see and can't hear and can't walk and, and check this out i don't know if you ever thought about this but the the creator God the God of the Bible is a God that can see Acts chapter 7 verse 34 says I have seen this is God speaking and he even repeats it he says I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world I've seen God says the affliction of my people on this planet and he says and I've heard their groaning and come down to deliver them not only can he see, though, but the God of the Bible is a God that can hear. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 and 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. But not only can he see, not only can he hear, but our God, the God of the Bible can walk. And he walked up a hill that is called Calvary with your sins and mine upon his back. And when we call upon him to forgive us of our sin, to come into our lives, 
to be our Lord and our Savior. You know what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16? Listen to it. He says, when you call on my name like that, I'll dwell in you and I'll walk in you. And you'll be my sons and my daughters and I'll be your God and I'll be your father. And listen, in the face of that promise and that invitation from that kind of God, man in the tribulation period will choose rather to worship dead, lifeless idols and the demons that they represent. But not only will man manifest a lack of repentance Godward, it will also manifest a lack of repentance manward. Manward, or the sins that man commits against himself or against his fellow man. Verse 21 says, Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And, and you know what's interesting, folks? The, those four sins that he lists right there just happen to be the four most serious problems facing law enforcement today. Check that out. 2,000 years ago, God was saying, let me just tell you what it's going to be like in the end times. And, and if you're wondering if things are, you know, might just start getting better if we get in a different president or, or, or something like that, it ain't. It ain't going to get better. And that ain't good English, but it's real sound theology. Verse 21 tells you that. It isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. Paul told us that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Time is only going to make things worse and worse. And even after witnessing all of these, these things that we've seen in the tribulation period, check it out, man in the tribulation period is still going to be murdering the first thing he says there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37, listen to it, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And if you go check it out in Genesis chapter 6, what those days were, the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11 says, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. It was in Noah's day. It'll be that way right before the tribulation period. Men will be committing violence against his fellow man, murdering. And he won't repent. And next John says they won't repent of their sorceries. And something interesting about this, this, this word from which our English word was translated here, the, the Greek word is pharmakia. It's where we get our word pharmacy, which is our word for drugs and we find that during the tribulation period just as there is right now on this planet there's going to be widespread use of drugs and drug addiction and in the midst of everything that they're seeing they won't repent of their drugs then next fornication and i mean you, you can just see this i mean this is just spelling out our time the, the world's just moving closer and closer to all of these, these things that will keep men from coming to Christ in the tribulation period. And what's crazy, I, I mean, just this is mind-boggling to me, is that even after all of this stuff that the people in the, 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 the tribulation period have seen, all the horrendous stuff that the last three and a half years of the tribulation is going to bring, you, you would think that survival would be the only passion that would be left in a man. 
What it says here is after all of that stuff, there's going to be a passion that is going to be in him and where he will commit sexual sin of every kind, even during the great tribulation, and he will not repent. And then lastly, he won't repent of his thefts either. He won't repent of his thefts. You know, what you find here is that by the end of the tribulation period, man will just be totally given in to the fulfillment of the desires of the flesh and, the, and of his mind. He'll get his money and he'll get his way any way he can by stealing it, by, by selling his body for it, by selling drugs for it, by killing for it. It doesn't matter because that period of time is going to be a time of absolute lawlessness. It'll be a time of absolute lewdness. It'll be a time of absolute lasciviousness where the evil desires of man, he will just be a, an animal wanting those things to be fulfilled. And, and you see the list of sins there in verses 20 and 21? Idolatry, murder, sorceries, fornication, thievery. Let me take you to one place in closing. First Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to show you a place where all of these same sins show up in a, in a list here, as the Apostle Paul was writing to the believers who were in the church at Corinth. Okay, now, now, now listen real carefully here, folks. Look at chapter 6 and verse 9. It says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Okay, now everybody in this room, listen this morning. Be not deceived. And he begins to give us a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Period. Watch now verse 11. And such were, past tense, and such were some of you. Check it out. That list of things that he just talked about, those things were true in the past of some of the believers that were in that church in Corinth. And he says, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And folks, now, now listen, if you're here this morning, and you don't know Christ. I want you to know something. You may, may have found yourself in this list that, that we, we just read there in verses 9 and, and 10. You may have found yourself, don't pack up, you may have found yourself in that list that God says are characteristics of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I want you to know something. Those things that he's talking about here in those two verses, those things weren't just things that were true of those people that were in that church in Korah. 
I want you to understand something this morning. You found yourself in a room full of people who used to be in that same list where you found yourself this morning. And we could say, in such were some of us. In fact, if you took this group of people here, I promise you, repeatedly, we could hit every single thing that's on that list. But you see, what happened is there came a day in our life where we understood that the God of this Bible was a God of love that came to this planet and died for us. And man, understanding the message, what we did is we called upon his name. And you know what he did? Look at it again in verse 11. You know what he did? He washed our sins away with his own blood. And he changed who we were. He sanctified us. He set us apart from all of that stuff and unto himself. And he justified us. You know what justified means? He made us just as if I'd never sinned. He washes us from all of that. And I want you to know this morning that the holy creator God of this universe wants to carry out verse 11 in your life this morning. He wants to wash you with his blood. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to set you apart from the sin of this world and unto himself. He wants to justify you. And listen, it doesn't matter who you are this morning. You may be a murderer. You may be a drug addict, a drug dealer. You may be a fornicator. That is, you're involved in in some kind of illicit sexual sin. You're a pornographer. You're a homosexual. You're a lesbian. Or you're straight. You just actively have sex outside of the marriage bonds. Or or maybe maybe you're just an out-and-out thief. Do you realize this morning that all of those sins are forgivable by God. And the scripture says in Psalm 89 that he is ready to forgive even you with all of your sin. You know how we know that? Because he took us with all of our sin. And listen, if you'll just come to him, he'll do that for you this morning. Again, it doesn't matter who you are. You know what? Young people. There's a little song that uh, is real popular today by the Backstreet Boys. And the song says this. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you've done. As long as you love me. And you know what? That's not what they're singing about. But that's what Jesus says to you this morning. I don't care who you are. And it really doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background is. If you'll come to me, it's all forgiven. He wants to do that for you today. And, and, And as sincerely as I know how to tell you, this is the only thing that he's going to do to reveal it to you through preaching. And if this isn't enough, then nothing else would work anyway. And you have that opportunity today. I'm just telling you. You can repent of that stuff today in the tribulation period. God's already said it. You won't then. 
They won't repent of their murders, their sorceries, their fornication, or their theft. But today, man, his arms are open wide, and he wants to do that for you today. Let's bow our heads.